Hunters and Unicorns, the Sales Leaders Playbook. In this special edition series, the 33 CXOs, today we welcome one of Silicon Valley's most prolific sales leaders, Brian Blonde. Managing Director at Sutter Hill Ventures, Brian was just 34 years old when he took his first Chief Revenue Officer position. Watch this episode to discover how he uses maths to scale some of the best technology companies in the world. In this special edition series, The 33 CXOs, we investigate one of the greatest success stories in the history of software sales. 33 CXOs learnt the playbook from one man, John McMahon, a legacy which stretches back to the late 90s at a company called PTC. They were later reunited at Blade Logic, which was acquired by BMC. What happened next was truly remarkable. These CXOs went on to become the most prolific sales leaders in the software industry. They've raised over 22 billion in VC funding. They contribute to 4% of software turnover globally, 26 unicorns, eight decacorns, and the companies they drive have a combined valuation of 230 billion. At Hunters and Unicorn, we're revealing their playbook. I'm Simon Kutis, and I'm joined by my co-host, Oli Kune. Hi, everyone. And we are delighted to welcome Brian Blonde. Brian, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Thanks. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show, Brian. Thank you very much for, uh, for joining us today. Now, in the introduction, I've obviously referred to you being one of the CXOs, but the truth is, is that you've actually gone beyond that now because you're now betrothed to the world of the VC, of the VC world. Um, so you're currently MD at Sutter Hill Ventures. Can you just tell us a little bit about your role and some of the portfolio that you guys are uh, responsible for? Yeah, sure. I'm one of the uh, investment partners at Sutter Hill. Um, so, you know, we're, we're a pretty unique firm. We like to start companies. We also invest in companies, um, but we're, we're very focused on enterprise B2B. And, you know, some of the companies that we've invested in and started are NVIDIA, Snowflake, Pure Storage. So typically we're a small firm and that we've only got 30 portfolio companies, but odds are everybody's heard of every company we've been in. Well, Snowflake just received a very small, modest top-up investment of just under $479 um, back in February. So, yeah, I think uh, the portfolio is doing pretty well at the moment, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's great. (laughs) So, So the CXOs that we're obviously referring to as part of the intro, many of them have obviously got very different backgrounds when you look at them when they kind of first entered Blade Logic. And when we are looking for those common traits, you talk a lot about DNA. Yeah. What is it that you refer to when you talk about DNA? You know, I think sales is, there's so many parallels with sports, to be honest. And sports is very DNA based as well, right? Um, and so, you know, I view it as you have to be super competitive. You have to be super driven. And those are traits that you can't fake. You also have to be super smart. Right. So when you combine all three of those, you get the makeup of somebody that can be a good salesperson. Right. Okay. So, Brian, looking at your early part of your career, uh, you graduated uh, from university in 1996 and went straight into an internal sales role at Oracle. 
Can you tell us a little bit about your early career and why you chose software sales or why software sales chose you? Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, you know, I grew up in Kansas City, went to the University of Missouri, which is, if you're not familiar, it's the Harvard of the Midwest. I'm not, I'm not serious about that. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, came out to the Bay Area, kind of, I think it was like 97, uh, 98, right? As, you know, everything was starting to take off from the dot-com side and, you know, started really at the bottom. Got a job at Oracle, drove out, moved out for it, um, and was an SDR. That's, that's what I started my career doing and did uh, the SDR role for probably about, you know, half a year almost and then moved into like a, what they called the work group sales team, which was closing deals, but you couldn't close deals more than 50K and then you had to pass it off and then, and then moved into closing deals that were closer to 100K all on the inside sales team. Um, and, you know, at that point, I was like, okay, I, I want a field job. Oracle was offering me a field job, but I had to move to like Texas or something like that. So that wasn't going to happen. So join startups and, you know, basically I'd say 2000 to 2004, which was the period right before I joined Blade Logic. you know, I was always really a top sales rep at each, each company I was at. Um, you know, I really don't know exactly what it was that, you know, made me good versus somebody else. Cause I kind of keep in my own bubble and just do my job and be focused. And, you know, and ended the, the company I was at, right before blade logic you know i i was one of like 12 reps but i was doing 50 percent of the revenue of the company on my own uh, and so john had heard about me doing that and once i joined blade logic that's actually when i started to realize what i was doing differently than everybody else and so that comes down to and i'm sure we'll we'll talk about medic a little bit but um Medic actually taught me a framework that when I first heard it, I was like, oh my God, this is, this is kind of what I've been doing uh, as a sales rep. I didn't know it. I didn't know there was a framework to it, you know, but it, it starts with identifying pain and building champions and, you know, qualifying your time a lot by getting to an economic buyer and all of that stuff. And, you know, it was all the stuff that I was doing to shine so much at these companies, but I really didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't have a clue that that's what it was. Yeah. Um, and it's a fairly modest answer there saying, you know, 50% of the total revenue that, that's in a 10 man team. So that's yeah, pretty outstanding. <laughs> Did you think, you know, is it your past success? One of the reasons why John McMahon hired you? What, 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 what was the reason? Uh, man, it's a tough question. I mean, it's, it's, it's one for him. I, I, I think <laughs> at the end of the day, John loves kind of super aggressive salespeople that are driven and, you know, that are, have high intellectual horsepower. So one of the things they, they did at Blade Logic was we'd always have a test. So there'd be yeah. a math test to be able to um, join the company. But also, you know, I'll never forget the first time I interviewed with John. I mean, he does this thing where he stares you down and I, Immediately, one, and I was probably a little cocky at the time. I was like 28 when I joined Blade Logic, and we met at the airport Marriott in San Francisco. And he comes in and he sits down and he just stares at you. And <laughs> you know, I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to stare right back at you. And, uh, it, you know, it felt like five minutes, but it was probably really 90 seconds. But I was like, I'm not going to be the first one to talk. <laughs> so, yeah. so, 
there was that there's the stare and you know comes out that john does this quite a bit and it's a test to really see like you know are you going to get nervous are you going to get uncomfortable are you going to start blabbering first or are you going to wait wait for john to talk and in about you know 90 seconds or whatever john starts laughing and then the conversation goes goes pretty well Interesting. You joined Blade Logic at 28. You got made into a manager at 30. So two years after that, is that correct? Uh, no, right when I joined, right when I joined Blade Logic, I joined as a manager. So right, I, was the, okay. I was the first manager on the West Coast, um, but still a small team. Like John had just, John had just started there probably three months before me. Um, so it was like a couple reps at the time. Yeah. Which is the interesting transition, right? Because obviously you've, when, we, when we've spoke before, you talk about you know, being a very good, successful salesperson, but not actually understanding why you were successful. Obviously, a playbook was introduced to you. Sales methodology was introduced to you. And you had to make a change. And you know, it's, it's, it is common for very successful pay, salespeople to, to get stuck in their own way because they're doing well. You know, did you fight the change or, you know, did you see John as such a, an influential individual that you just said, look, I've got to embrace what I'm being told here. And just, I, you know, I loved it and I embraced it. And quite frankly, if I fought it, I wouldn't have been there very long. Yeah. Um, and so part of it was in, you know, in, in all honesty, had I not gone to Blade Logic and spent the four years there and learned what I learned, I would have been a shitty head of sales. <laughs> you know, I would have been a bad manager. It, like you don't just because you're a good salesperson, it's a totally different job leading a team and building a team and scaling a team. And so there's plenty of great salespeople all over the place that have failed once they go into management. And so it does without blade logic and without John, yeah. you know, I'm not doing what I'm doing today. And yeah. so part of what medic did, I mentioned that, I didn't know how, like what I was doing special that other reps weren't doing. I wasn't spending time with other reps. I knew what I was doing and I knew what was making me successful, but I could, how do I go teach somebody to do this? Which is the first thing you got to do as a manager. You're hiring a team, you're motivating a team and you're developing a team. Medic gives you the tools to actually teach somebody how to be successful as a salesperson. And it gives you kind of, the swim lanes within to guide them when they're in a deal. And so that's part of what you learn initially at Played Logic and what John's developing his teams to do is to be able to actually taking, you know, rock star reps, but making them all great in terms of qualifying their time and finding pain and developing champions. And then he also would take, you know, most, if you look at our, management team they were all very young in the blade logic days and so he would take raw material and make them great um and so that's that's part of it amazing so those metrics that medic obviously requires they can be quite daunting to a lot of salespeople. they can be seen as micromanagement they can be seen as kpis what would you say about that sentiment Look, I mean, I think at the end of the day, it's micromanagement on a level and it's daunting because reps want to have, I call it happy years. Like they want to think every deal that they're working on is going to close. And 
The fact is it's not. And so what it does is it gets you, the, the name of the game with scaling a sales organization is maximizing sales productivity. What are you going to get out of each rep? And Medic makes sure that your reps are spending time on deals that are actually going to close, not on deals that aren't going to close and wasting that sales productivity time. And so reps don't like it because I'm saying you're not doing a POC at this deal until I've met the economic buyer and I've validated that they are on the same page, that they've got budget to spend on this. They agree with what we're going to do in the POC and they've agreed with the criteria for that POC. And if we're successful, they're going to buy, right? And so that's a lot to ask of a rep to go do all that stuff. But if they follow Medic and they get into the POC, I know that it's going to close. So how do, you, how do you find the balance of creativity within that kind of environment? You know, is there space or, or, or is it, this is the proven method, this is how it is, so and these are the results? So there's space for creativity, but you're not like, you guys have probably heard the saying, like the art of the sale, right? <laughs> and that's, I think that's BS, right? I mean, it's really... <laughs> <laughs> what you're trying to do is create science, right? I mean, it, it's a piece of the process, but I scale teams with math, right? Like, you know, I want to know that the numbers are right and that we've got all the percentages right. And we've got the right amount of reps and we're scaling as fast as we can. And if I allow for a lot of art going on all over the place, I can't predict it. It's not that scalable, repeatable model that you need to actually scale an organization. So that being said, there are reps that you can't <clears throat> like, you know, you can apply the best medic to and the meth process to, and they still beat everybody else, right? That's where the art comes in. It's not, you're not turning reps into robots, but you're using math to actually scale a sales organization. And you can only do that with the right sales process. So Blade Logic was obviously acquired by BMC. It was a relatively small acquisition yeah yeah Eight, 800 million <laughs> 800 million it's, it's for the scale of bmc it's relatively modest yeah but you guys pretty much took over uh <laughs> it's, a, it's a pretty great story tell us a little bit about that 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 time yeah i mean it was pretty it was pretty unreal um one bmc quite frankly had a really bad sales organization at the time and you know it, there weren't a lot of great sales reps there either and Blade Logic was like a wrecking ball. Like we just came in, we were all super aggressive. And initially, BMC made Blade Logic folks overlays. So, like, you know, so we're basically <laughs> answering to the BMC sales team. And I think they realized, I'd say within a couple of months, like this is going to blow up. Like people are fighting all over the place. You know, Blade Logic are telling BMC reps to pound sand, we're going to do it my way or I'm not helping you. And so they knew they had to make a decision pretty quickly. And, you know, I think part of what they saw in Blade Logic was John and the sales organization. And so, um, you know, it was just evident, like it, this thing's going to blow up if we don't actually let the Blade Logic guys take over. It was, it was pretty funny. Yeah. I bet. yeah. <laughs> so what do you think was the source of the difference between BMC guys and the Blade Logic guys? You talk about you guys being wrecking balls, but... Was it that you just hired winners? Was it that they were just, you were just trained better? Were you just managed differently? 
or, or was it kind of a combination of different? It's kind things, of a combination. Or, or I mean, you know, we're we're a highly disciplined sales organization that knew what it took to to build something special. We were all super aggressive, um, and you know, we could run circles around the BMC team. I mean, in that day, no one was going to BMC that was a good sales rep. You know, it was typical big company you know, reps that like to go golf all the time with the CIO and, you know, do a couple deals, but they, you know, probably not working very hard. You know, it just, it, there was no comparison at that point. So PTC obviously embraced Medic 30 years ago, right? And they mastered yeah. it. Obviously, John McMahon's uh, legacy PTC, a lot of the Blade Logic guys came from, from PTC. And it was obviously a very, very strong presence there but at the moment we see a lot of organizations uh self-driven organizations that use medic but they don't necessarily see the same results what do you yeah. put that down to look i mean you know medic's pretty simple you know you can go read a book or you know memorize some letters and i i, I see it all the time with sales leaders that are like, oh, yeah, we run Medicare. I mean, it's the popular thing yeah. to say, right? And they don't understand Medic. Like, you know, quite frankly, I give it the analogy of like football and Parcells and Parcells legacy with all those great coaches, right? And, you know, it's not that the rest of the NFL doesn't know how to coach football, but when you worked under Parcells, you get guys like Belichick, right? And so that's the same with John and Blade Logic, right? At the end of the day, I could memorize medic that doesn't make me great. It's working under John for four years. It just becomes inherent and part of your DNA. And you actually understand how to scale a sales organization <clears throat> and what's important. And, you know, that you, you can't, you can't kind of take a shortcut to that, quite frankly. I mean, it, Part of why I started my career as an SDR, I've done every single job all the way along the top. I never took a shortcut. And so, you know, I just don't believe there are shortcuts out there. And so a lot of when I would look for heads of sales or I look for salespeople, I'm looking for where did they graduate from, you know, and I'm not talking about, did they go to Mizzou? I'm talking about, you know, who did they work for and where did they learn their craft? And if I don't have respect for that person, I'm not hiring them. Yeah. So it's actually quite interesting because when we were to, if we are to reflect on a lot of the CXOs that we're referring to as part of this series, pretty much every single one of them recruits in a very similar way. You guys scout businesses faster than anyone, right? And you don't look for experience or experience is a lot further down the list in terms of what you're looking for in the rookie to hire. Most people should look for experience because they think it's going to help them ramp up or it's going to de-risk the hire. But actually, you guys are looking for character. You're looking for, you know, coachability. You're looking for the intelligence. You're looking for drive. You're looking for winners. You know, that thick DNA that you're kind of talking about, right? Yeah, I mean, one of the things I always hate that you hear quite a bit um, is I really want somebody with a Rolodex that can walk us into a bunch of deals. Like, we've got zero interest in somebody's Rolodex. I can teach them everything. That's what sales enablement's about. You have a really tight sales enablement program. They can take a world-class athlete and teach them their product and teach them their value prop and teach them your core differentiators and how to go run medic and give them the deck and the messaging and do all of that. 
it doesn't matter what their Rolodex is. You know, it, that that's a short-term decision if you're looking for somebody with a Rolodex. So, what, so why do you think, you know, obviously as a business, we speak to hiring managers all the time, identifying this exact question and, and asking that and getting being told that, that that is the question, I need somebody with a Rolodex of questions. Why are so many people, in your opinion, then getting it wrong if that is what they're hiring? And why are they still hiring in, in that way? Because they're lazy. Right. Like it's easy to say like, Hey, you know, I don't, I don't need marketing. I don't need to, you know, do sales enablement. If I can go get a really senior salesperson that has sold a bunch to a handful of companies and he can walk us in there. Like, yeah. that's great. I don't really need to do much. It yeah. doesn't work and it doesn't scale. Right. Like it's a short term win, but what are you going to do after they get in those, those accounts? And what if those accounts don't buy? Yeah. You need somebody that's an all-around athlete. Yeah, and the scary thing is that so many, I mean, a really high percentage of people and hiring managers still hiring with that mentality. It's crazy. Yeah, it's and, and we're talking it's about stupid. some of the biggest names, you know, as I said, yeah. not to mention any, but... Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I think, I think there's, once you have a company that's really big, that's a little bit different of a profile than what you're looking for also when you know, the company is less than 100 million in ARR, you know, right. and when a company's 10 million, right? Like, you're defining all of that stuff. And you need somebody that's going to go run through a brick wall to get into as many accounts as possible and run the plays you're telling, and you're going to have to enable them. And I don't want somebody that, you know, is old, fat and lazy and wants to golf with the CIL. Like, that's not going to help me at a startup. Yeah, makes complete sense. Just- I just want to go back to uh, John McMahon for a moment. How would you describe his legacy? Uh, You know, I mean, I think quite frankly, his legacy is the people that he's trained that have gone on to do so great. You know, when, when you look at 33 sales leaders that came out of Blade Logic and BMC that are all running all of the biggest enterprise companies and, and had that success, statistically it's impossible. Right. And so you, that's really John's legacy. And I think that's one of the things John's most proud of is that he's had this much of an impact on all the people that he hired. And he hired most of us when we were, you know, late twenties, early thirties, like raw yeah. material. And, you know, I think that's John's legacy. John, John also, you know, he's on the board of Snowflake. Um, he had a lot to do with app dynamics in the early days. You know, John's created all of these people, but he's also kind of the second part of his career has been guiding these companies at the board level and, you know, making them monsters as well. Yeah. So before, sorry, before the legacy and before he had that legacy, you know, how was he able to impact so many people? What was it about him that, you know, is it just because, you know, one, he's he's an inspiring guy. Like, Mm. you know, he does, he's super tough. He was super tough on all of us. You know, they're, to make it through four years at Blade Logic was was not easy because you miss a quarter and you're gone. And so, you know, but you ask any of us, even some of the people that were fired by him, um, yeah. they'd still run through a brick wall for the guy. So there's some intangible leadership that needs to be there, but it's also his process. And so, you know, I knew if I ever missed a quarter, I was shot. And yeah. quite frankly, I thrived in that environment. I'd much rather know the expectations and know how performing and set up a plan to be able to exceed the expectations 
than being in an environment where you never know if you're going to get shot. Like you never know what you're doing. So like I, if I've got a goal line, I know what I need to do to beat it. Yeah. And I suppose in terms of you guys then going on and replicating that, you recognize that if you're going to run a strict, you know, a very tight ship in this, in this form, you obviously need the right type of mindset to be able to, to have the resilience to be successful and that competitive nature. And as long as you've got the intelligence, that's what it really takes. And so it's no surprise that you guys that have obviously lasted through those four, five, six years under John's leadership, that you've gone on with the trajectory that you have. Yeah, no, I'd agree. I think, I think, you know, there was a lot about blade logic, not just kind of the sales process we ran that set folks up for the right mindset, mentality, leadership skills to actually be able to, to excel. Yeah, obviously looking after Blade Logic and you know moving on from there, you know, after four years at Blade Logic, obviously then went on to to Vertru and they hired Vitru, Vitru yeah, sorry, yeah. which they they hired you at the age of thirty four as a CRO, right? Yeah, yeah, no, it was my that's I left, I stayed at BMC for probably about a year after after the acquisition and then went to Vitru as my first CRO role. Right. Yeah, I mean, Invitro was a a great run. You know, I'm it. You're always learning a lot when you're when you're a first time CRO. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and making lots of mistakes. I'm sure I did. Uh, but you know, a lot of just having the comfort knowing the Blade Logic playbook and what worked. It you know pretty quickly after I got there. You know, it just started taking off. Um, and we were you know pretty lucky at the time. Like within a year. We had offers from both Salesforce and Oracle and Oracle bought us. And unfortunately I ended up back at Oracle and I couldn't hate big companies more because it, it's, it's the anti of everything I just told you about what I like to do and how I like to scale. And you end up with, you know, process and politics and, you know, a bu- bad sales organizations and, you know, it's stifling. So, you know, I got, I got out of, got out of there pretty quick. You talk about luck, right? <laughs> but uh, you've got Think to Me acquired by Yahoo, 170 systems acquired by Kofax, Blade Logic acquired by BMC, Virtue acquired by Oracle. So that's four acquisitions in a row, followed by Telium. No acquisition, but probably likely to IPO anytime. Um, yeah. And then ThoughtSpot, which made it unicorn in two years. That's yeah, no, I mean, of, is that, that's a lot of luck. <laughs> <Yeah. Brian. laughs> no one's that lucky, Brian. <laughs> All right, whatever. Mm. Uh, no, there is there is some luck, but I think you know I think part of it is this process works. You got to pick the right company, you got to pick the right space, you got to pick hard technology, and you got to build the right sales organization. And if you do all of those things, you're going to be successful. But at thirty four. Is that a risk for them? You're, you're, that's very young to, to take a... Yeah, no, I'd say, I'd say it definitely was a risk. It's interesting, you know, most of the Blade Logic folks were same age as me, and most of them, after leaving Blade Logic BMC, took on CRO roles out of the gate. So I think I was one of the first ones to do it, but... I think it became less and less risky for all these companies and more that they just, you know, there became that 
let's go get a blade logic guy to run sales. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, you know, as I said, an interesting point now. So obviously your recent chapter in, in joining a VC, you know, how did you keep reinventing yourself? How did you keep climbing? Um, look, I mean, ThoughtSpot was incredibly fun. Um, you know, when I joined there, they'd already been through two heads of sales that didn't work out. Um, it was, you know, really struggling as a company and, um, you know, with very, very little sales over the first couple of years of the product being out. And I completely gutted the thing, rebuilt it. And, you know, within a year, it was a unicorn. Um, and so I did that. And that's kind of the third time I've done it. Uh, and so it was great. I could do it in my sleep. I could go do it again. But when I started talking to the folks at Sutter, and specifically Mike Spicer and Chad Peets I'd worked with uh, ever since Blade Logic, you know, I just got super excited about doing something that was totally different um, and learning a new craft and continuing to take my game to the next level. So, you know, it was just an opportunity I couldn't pass up. So, so what did you bring to, 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 in that case then, what did you bring to Sutter Hill Ventures? What, what, what did they bring you into the business? So Sutter didn't have um, a partner that knows go to market. Um, I mean, inherently they know it. And quite frankly, they brought in John uh, early on a lot of their companies to help, but none of our current partners were ex-CROs. Um, and it's interesting in venture, you don't see a lot of folks with a background like mine that are VCs. And you know, I, I actually think that's a big mistake when you're in board meetings and you're working with all these early stage companies and you're trying to get them to go, you spend 90% of the board meeting on sales and trying to figure out like what's working, what's not working and how you scale the thing. And so to have a board where no one really knows go to market yeah. is complete idiocy. Um, and I've had lots of boards where no one knew go to market. Um, so um, I think it was something that Sutter actually realized and, was really uh, thought leaders in terms of let's get let's get an investment partner that knows sales. Yeah, we also all work together um, really well. And Sutter obviously understands the importance of sales and nailing go to market. But you know whether I invest in a company personally through Sutter or we start a company or it's one of my partners' investments, I still help them. You know I right. still want to go help them nail sales. So what is it that you're looking for within a company to invest in then? So uh, one, we look for hard engineering. <clears throat> so one of the things is you don't want demand risk. And that, that's where you get into consumer. Like I could go build an application and then put it out in the wild and no one downloads it, no one uses it, I'm done. There's nothing you can do to fix that. Like if you have, if no one wants to use it, shut it up. And so, um, you know, you want technology where there's no demand risk. If you think about like Snowflake, right? If I can build a company that can do things a hundred times faster than Teradata and I can build it in the cloud, everybody on the planet's going to want it. It's really a question of can I actually build it? So there's no demand risk. It's very hard engineering. But if you can build it, you can build a thousand person sales organization. That's the type of stuff we like to look for, where you can have a really, really big organization. And then we also have Chad Peets, who 
did the recruiting for Blade Logic, App Dynamics, MongoDB, Snowflake, and put him into our companies. So Chad does all the recruiting for Sutter Hill, and you know he's a partner and he only works on Sutter Hill companies, but that's part of the secret sauce. If we can yeah. build something that's very hard engineering and then staff it with a Blade Logic type sales organization, yeah, magic happens. Yeah. He's a legend in the industry or in, in our industry. So um, yeah, he's done some amazing things. So at what stage, you know, do you enter into the process and what, 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 what part do you, do you pay the early start conversations? Yeah, we like to go, we like to go early. Um, so sometimes we start companies. Um, sometimes we will invest in A or, or B rounds. That's, that's typically where it is. Yeah. You know, once it gets too late, we can't actually bring the team to make the impact that we can when it's early. When it's early and we've got a blank canvas with good engineer, great engineering, we can build a monster. Yeah, interesting. So, so how do you assess the sales capability in the organizations that you invest in? Is that something that you're hands-on involved in as part of your, your role? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I help. It's not my core, core focus, um, but... Um, it's something that I can bring to our portfolio that I, I love doing and I help. And, you know, kind of between Chad and I, we do that quite a bit. We also have a huge blade log- legacy and most of our heads of sales come from that, right? So Chris Degnan at Snowflake worked for Andy Byron at Avexa where he <laughs> went right after Blade Logic. Uh, Andy Byron's president of Lacework, one of our cloud companies. Um, we just launched another company with another Blade Logic person that's still in stealth. So we're surrounding our portfolio with Blade Logic folks and Blade Logic process and Blade Logic recruiting, and you know it's it's working great for us. You talk about Chad Pete's quite a lot. It's quite strange to have a recruiter working to to be partner in, in a VC. He's he's also a managing director, I understand, right? Yep. Yep. So, so what place does a recruiter have in a VC? You kind of touched on it already. Look, like it's a secret sauce, right? If, if we can build sales organizations that Chad can build, and you know, Chad's pretty special, obviously, with the companies he's done, it's a competitive advantage. And so Chad's unlike other recruiters at, a, you know, every VC has their recruiter, right? It's kind of like, oh, you need a CMO, we'll do it. Or you need a CRO, we'll do it. Chad does everything end to end. And I've always felt that's the best way to do it. You know, if it's not a Sutter Hill company and somebody's looking to bring on salespeople, I would say hire one recruiter and make them, you know, your partner in building this company. And so where I see it fail all the time is they're not strategic about the recruiters they bring on. And they've got, you know, you'll, you'll be like, yeah, we've got like five recruiters working this spot. That does not work. Right. And, and it, what it does is it torches the territory. Like you, everybody's like, yeah, I've gotten a call on that from three other guys. Um, yep. So it doesn't work. I think recruiters can be very strategic, especially sales recruiters can be very strategic to a company, but you need to find a partner and give them the reins and make them truly part of the business to scale the business. When Chad did Snowflake, he's the only recruiter that's placed anybody from CRO to a thousand sales reps. And so that's, that's where it works. And that's where the magic happens when you're keeping the recruiters in an arm's length and you're just using them to kind of like give you candidates off of LinkedIn 
it's a waste of everybody's time. Yeah. So how does the non-compete effect there then? Because obviously if you know, there is, you know, you're talking about a pool, if you're all investing, then rebuilding certain teams, are you moving the individuals within the different companies? No, we're places, really not. I mean, you know, you, are you, just, you know, we, yeah, we don't, we don't do that. Like we, we treat every portfolio company special. Yeah. And the last thing we do is yeah. get really, you can't really take one rep and move them from one company to the yeah. next. You know, that being said, reps leave companies all the time. And so you do end up kind of recycling some reps, but it's not, you know, poaching from one company to, yeah. to, 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 to give them to the next one. Well, the different life cycles, aren't they? You know, as you do, you like early stage startups, right? They totally um, are. And yeah, so I mean, you know, those, those individuals that like the first one to three years of a business, you know, there's individuals that like a more established business, et cetera. But also you are looking with a lot of the clients and a lot of your, your portfolio of that next wave of individuals, that next wave of intelligent, coachable, enthusiastic, competitive, intelligent salespeople that are coming through that next wave. So those new waves are always coming through as the company evolves with time, right? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, like now, for instance, Snowflake is hiring a lot of major account manager, like senior guys that, um, you know, can take down you know, massive deals at their accounts. And so that's a different skill set than, yeah. you know, hiring the 28 year old, you know, green sales rep that you're going to teach them everything and mold them. You know, if you're going to take down a hundred million dollar deal, that's probably not the rep you want on it. And so yeah. it just, it evolves over time. Mm. So, so do you think that many companies miss their quotas because of their recruitment strategy? Do you think that's a, a common conclusion? Oh, a ton of the time. Right. So, you know, what you do is you create a productivity model and that tells you how many reps you need to hire to be able to hit your number. And it's part of, it's part of using science and math to be able to scale a business. And so as soon as you don't hire a rep or you hire the wrong rep, you're in big trouble of missing your number because all of a sudden you're going to get zero productivity out of that rep that you were planning on saying getting a million dollars this year out of. Even worse, you don't, if you don't hire them, you know, you're going to have to cheat the ramp time to actually get that rep productive. But worse, you hire the wrong one and you don't develop them and you're not paying attention to all the KPIs and you realize six months in, this rep's not going to make it. So you shoot that rep, you start another search, takes you three months to find somebody. Now you're nine months into the year. You have a brand new rep starting in that territory and it actually crushes that territory for two years because you've got to ramp them then at that point. So making a bad hire is just as bad as not actually hitting your hiring goals. But if you don't hit your hiring goals, you're screwed from day one. Yeah. So, so you talk a lot about sales being a science. You talk a lot about the mathematics, um, predictable yeah. results. Again, if we were to reflect on the success that you and this group are all having do you share that view? Do you think that many of your group share that kind of mindset around how they scale those organizations? Yeah, no, I think everybody does. And, you know, I think even outside of Blade Logic, if you're not using science and math to guide you in scaling these businesses, in like figuring out how many reps can you add and how quickly can you add them? If you're, if you're not watching all the KPIs, you have no idea. So you either overhire or you underhire. And so, 
I'm looking at things like, you know, the number of first meetings that they're having on a weekly basis. And then what's their conversion percentage from first meeting to second meeting? And then what's their conversion percentage from second meeting to POC? And what's their POC conversion percentage? And if you're watching every single one of those on a weekly basis, you can figure out like, okay, I can continue to add reps and my first meetings aren't dropping. And if a rep is able to get the first meetings and say their second meeting conversion is lower than what I'm liking to see, usually that's a coaching thing. You know, their their messages and their messages off. They're not asking for next steps. There's a lot of issues that can kind of happen between first and second meeting that isn't an effort then. The first meeting is the effort then. If, if they're, you know, if I, if I want everybody to get five net new meetings every week and this person's getting three or two or one pretty quickly, I'm going to either figure out, okay, like there's something they're doing wrong or it really is effort. And if it's effort, I'm going to fire them, you know, but quickly, I'm not going to wait until I see how they do the next quarter or the quarter after that, or if they're hitting their number, because I can already tell you right out of the gate, if they're not getting the first meetings, they're not going to hit their number. I just want to bring a bit of perspective because when we set out to invest a story about the Blade Logic guys and the remarkable success that you guys are having, it's very easy to draw the conclusion that perhaps you're just buddies looking out for each other. That could be one way of kind of interpreting it. But actually, when you start to invest in this deeper and deeper, you know, it's not just Blade Logic. You have a look at the success previously at PTC. Um, app dy- dynamic after that it's not just about the fact that you are kind of just buddies you are just a crop of individuals that that just yeah a remarkable no, I agree. if anything thirst. we're not buddies we're all yeah. extremely competitive so that makes us not really be buddies i think there's a sign of respect but i i want to beat them at everything they do all the time so it's not it's not a it's not like we're just all tight buddies looking out for each other uh, it's it's almost the opposite. <laughs> so, so is there any is there any downtime for you, Brian? Is it is it full one hundred percent twenty four seven? It's pretty tough. I mean, I think <clears throat> all of us are such driven uh, individuals that there's not a lot of vacations and downtime. And you know, I'm pretty much bringing it as hard as I can all the time. And then you know. I've got two kids and, you know, I try and do my family time and I also have to work out at least once a day or I lose my mind. And so, you know, it's kind of a combination of that. And that's typically what makes up most of my days. Interesting. Cause you do quite a lot of swimming, right? That's one of that is your, well, I used to, that was, that was my sport um, really in high school. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, was pretty blessed with it because I actually hated it as well. Uh, but you know, after doing two a, two times a day for you know spending almost six hours in the pool every day, I can't even smell chlorine anymore because <laughs> I really? have flashbacks. Yeah, it's pretty right. bad. Right. So why was that? Because that that was a really important part for you, right? It was. I mean, uh, you know, for me, um, it, it's it's about discipline, and I think you know, I think any sport can provide discipline, but you know, I really like individual sports as much as I do team sports. Like, you know, you can be, you can be a phenomenal basketball player, but it can be, you know, natural and fun for you. And it's interesting. I don't know if you guys have been watching the, uh, the new Michael Jordan documentary of how intense he is 
what's what do they call on ESPN? I can't remember. Oh, the yeah, the Last Dance. Last so anyway, dance, yeah. like it's unbelievable to watch that, and it it comes to kind of how I feel about sports, and, and you know, I think Michael Jordan's mentality and how brutal and competitive and holding everybody accountable and pushing everybody as hard as he can that equates a lot to what all of us do in our sales organizations. Um, and so there is, it's, it's very similar sports versus sales. Um, and if you've got that type of mentality, I, I really don't care what you do. If you've got that type of mentality, you're going to be successful. So we've obviously heard the story, Brian, but did you always see this as your destiny? Was this, or did you always know you would reach this level? No, not at all. I mean, you know, you're not thinking that far ahead, quite frankly. Um, you know, I, you know, I, I live pretty much in the moment and I'm pretty intense about whatever it is I'm doing. Uh, and so I'm just focused. And then, you know, you, you focus and you do something special and new opportunities pop up. And, and look, we're asking this question of everybody, and I think it's for, for the benefit of our listeners that are all looking to, you know, break that glass ceiling. You know, what advice could you give them if there's three you know, key topics or key, three key points of advice? What would they be? Yeah, I mean, I'd say, you know, you have to be very driven. You have to work very hard. And you, you have to go work for somebody that can teach you and you can learn a lot from, you know, I think I see that mistake all the time where reps go work someplace and they're like, well, I'm actually better than the head of sales, but you know, I think I can make some money here. There's no shortcuts. Right. And so, you know, the four years at blade logic, I think all of us would say like, some, we, we enjoyed it, but it was brutal. It was brutal on all of us. It was brutal on our families. It was, you know, but like without it, none of us are where we would be today. And so don't take a shortcut. Don't say, Oh, I can make 50 grand more, but I got to work for this guy that I don't respect. Go learn from somebody that's unbelievable at what they do and it'll pay off in spades. So go and work for a Sutter Hill venture company, right? <laughs> you got it. <laughs> going to learn it. <laughs> Fantastic. So if I was to kind of um, conclude on where we are with this, Brian, I think, What's really interesting is that you haven't come from a place of privilege. It was never your destiny to reach the levels that you have. And I'm hoping that people that are listening to this are obviously encouraged by that. The remarkable success that you as a group seem to have um, is not because of something that was given to you. It was the fact that you were put through your paces, you were really tested, and you were put outside of the comfort zone. And you had the, the strength, you had the competitive nature to be able to continue to push and grow and push yourself beyond your comfort zone and weren't cha- you weren't scared of the challenge. And that just enabled you to continue to reinvent yourself. Uh, and I think that this is a common trait that we're seeing in a lot in, in yourself, definitely. And every single person that we are speaking to, whilst they are really thankful for the teachings of someone like John McMahon who showed them the way, it is still down to you as individuals to really embrace that and reinvent that, calibrate that, make that your own, own it, and continue to see the success that you're seeing. So, um, you know, I'd really like to thank you for joining us on the podcast today. 
So for our listeners, thank you very much for tuning in. Um, if you've liked what you've heard, please comment, share and like. Feel free to get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Lots more guests lined up. So look out for all the live updates on our LinkedIn page and on the somuchsoap.com website forward slash blog. That's all for today's show. We'd really like to thank Brian for joining us. Thank you very much, Ollie. And uh, remember, unicorns are made and not found. Thanks, guys. Thank you.